Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, we're kind of back to where we were. No one's in the sanctuary except for people who are uh, actively participating and leading it. It's a sad state of affairs, but God willing, uh, we're closer. God willing, we might be closer to the end than the beginning. We pray. Uh, in any event, I want to share with you that it is not all that uncommon that humor has great theological import to it, or that there's theological meaning in the jokes that we tell. So this one joke is called Two Boats and a Helicopter. I know you've heard it before. It goes like this. A terrible flood rips through a town, and the rabbi, who's a very pious man, of course, he's a pious man, um, he goes to the roof of the synagogue as the waters begin to swell. A boat passes by and he says, Rabbi, can we save you, take you out? He goes, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. The waters begin to rise even further and yet another boat comes. The people then cry out, Rabbi, please come into the boat and we'll take you to safety. And the rabbi says, I'll wait for God to save me. The storm increases as do the waters and they begin to overtake even the roof where the rabbi is standing of the synagogue. A helicopter comes by, and they scream out from the helicopter, Rabbi, we're going to send down a rope. Please take it, and we'll bring you to safety. The rabbi refuses, saying that God will save him. A short while later, the rabbi drowns and dies. He goes to heaven. He approaches God and says, God, why didn't you save me? And God, according to the joke, says, Idiot, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> What more did you want? The, the theological impact of the joke is also seen in this beautiful statement by the deceased Israeli writer Aaron Apafeld. Apafeld, the Holocaust survivor, remarked by saying that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And so with that in mind, I want to share with you an insight into the Torah portion that isn't merely ancient, it's actually quite modern, although the origins of it are very, very ancient. It is a story that is the second Parsha of the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. Last week we heard, introduced to the slavery of the Israelites, of the cruelty of the Egyptians, and the birth of a young child whose parents called him Tuvia, but we know him as Moses, the name given to him by Pharaoh's daughter. We know that Moses eventually becomes a shepherd all the way out in Midian. And while he's out taking the sheep for their grazing, that he chances upon a bush that is burning, that is not consumed, that God speaks to him from, from commanding him, charging him with the mission that he will take the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses famously provides himself with difficult arguments for God because Moses doesn't want to take the job. And then with that, with the charge of God in his mind and heart, Moses returns back to Egypt. But this morning's Torah portion is strange because once again we find in this morning's Torah portion, once again, the second one of the book of Exodus, we find a second version of Moses' being charged by God. This second version of Moses being charged by God doesn't rest itself upon this miraculous image of a bush that is burning, that is not consumed in the middle of the wilderness, that a voice calls out from this bush, giving Moses charge and his mission. No. What we find this morning 
is that Moses complains to God that the people won't listen because he doesn't speak their language. <coughs> Famous leading to different interpretations. Well, clearly Moses didn't speak whatever language the Israelites spoke then. Another interpretation was that Moses had a stutter, whatever the reason is. But that God says, okay, you don't want to do it. You don't feel confident doing. You take your brother Aaron. Who meet Neveh. He'll be the prophet for you. In other words, he'll be the one to speak in your behalf. Aaron, who the people know. Aaron, who was an Israelite amongst the Israelites in Egypt. Not you, an Israelite who grew up as a prince in Pharaoh's court. An outsider trying to save the inside of the people. No, you'll go with one of the insiders. And he'll help save them. So how do you reconcile these two stories? Because the fact of the matter is, the first version of the story, where God charges itself, Moses, to go and do it through this miraculous image of God appearing in a bush, shouldn't that have been enough? Why do we need this other version where Moses goes with Aaron? Aaron does the talking. And I want to once again return to the words of Apafeld. Apafeld who said that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. There are two ways to see the world, at least two ways, but two big ways. There's a way to see the world in which everything that happens is controlled by God. That anything that should happen, will happen, could happen. Anything that we want to happen will only occur by the acquiescence and will of God. This idea where everything is connected by and controlled by an act of God, that everything is determined precisely because God has determined at that moment that it should happen, is in fact deeply embedded in Jewish religious tradition and in many other religious traditions. The story of the Exodus from Egypt is also you often used by us as the story of God intervening in, in nature of God performing wondrous miracles, parting seas and bringing plagues and all kinds of things to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. A more recent story for us, meaning recent in terms of the Jewish calendar, is the story of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, we are told, one version of it is, the story of a miracle occurring with light should have only burned for one day. It burns for eight. God made the oil last longer, although there wasn't actually enough oil to last that long. This idea, of course, that everything in, in the world is contingent upon God willing it to do so has a counterbalance to it. The counterbalance to it is is that the reason why Moses, in the second version, has to have Aaron is because God isn't going to make miracles happen. God may have very well been the one that charged Moses to take the Israelites out of Egypt. But the very fact that Moses needs Aaron to go with him, that Aaron is the one who should speak for him, Aaron is the one who will make the arguments for him, flies in the face of the first version. Because surely, surely, if God had the ability or the willingness or both to make anything happen at any time, why did Moses need Aaron? If Moses had a stutter, why couldn't God have fixed his stutter? 
perhaps even more, more weighty a question would be to ask, why did God even need Moses? God should have been able to take the Israelites all by itself. With Hanukkah, we know that there's an alternative story. Not a story of a miracle with lights and of oil, but a story of a miracle battle, of a, of a military battle, excuse me. I want to say to you that I respect and understand that there are various ways that people can look at the world, that there are certainly religious traditions and religious attitudes where people think that God is in lockstep with them every step of the way, that everything that happened, that will happen or could happen in the world is a direct, direct result of God wanting it to happen. But I also want to suggest to you that there's an alternative version, one that I personally am a deep, devoted student of. It is the argument that God is not attached to nature, but that God works through history, meaning through me and you. The idea that God doesn't interfere in the course of history, but that God works through history through the inspiring of human beings. That when we pray for people who are sick, we don't ask for God thinking that God is going to heal them, actually. We pray for the people to, to exhibit love for them and empathy. But more importantly, we should pray in recognizing the unique gifts that God gives for humans to solve and cure our illnesses. The fundamental problem when you think about God and nature and miracles and all these other things, is two inherent problems. Number one, the problem is, if your entire faith is built upon miracles happening, you're in a never-ending act of competition with other religions. One religion says, well, we have this miracle, and then another religion comes and says, well, we have this miracle. If your faith is completely contingent upon the, the exhibition of miracles, the proof of miracles, you're in for a never-ending competition with other religions to proving which one has the greater miracle. The other problem with miracles is, is that if your faith is only built on the existence of miracles, as Maimonides famously states, your faith is conditional. That only when a miracle happens are you assured that it's right to believe. For us, of course, for the past 50, 80 years, actually, it's deeply problematic to believe that God interferes in nature. How could we, first, second, third, almost four generations after the Shoah, the Holocaust, even consider to believe that God works in intervening in nature? It's an irreconcilable idea, given the fact that six million Jews were brutally murdered one and a half million of whom were children. And so alternatively, the idea is, is that God and our presence in the world is not simply a moral one. We're not here to simply be the best people that we can be and then God will take care of everything else. I believe that the reason why we're here is because we are challenged and charged to make the very best of the world as we live in it. And the reason why we have God is not because we think that God will save us from the moment, but that God will inspire us to save ourselves. That no matter how difficult the moment should be, 
that God is a never-ending source of inspiration for us to never lose our faith that things can be better once again. And if there has been any proof of that, certainly the Jews are proof of that. As the old saying goes, and I forget who said it, you can either live in one or two ways. You can live as though nothing is a miracle, or you can live as though everything is a miracle. Maimonides famously notes by looking, if you want inspiration in life, don't look at or think about all the things you think that God could do to save you from a particular difficult moment by interfering in the order of the world. Rather, Maimonides says, in the nighttime, walk out of your home and look in the sky. Or in the morning, wake up extra early and look at the sunrise. Think about the breath that you take in nearly every second of your life. Or open your eyes and see all the colors that your eyes can see. Or close your eyes and recall the memory of some loving moment and special moment in your life and how that memory is never lost to you even though the person may very well be. Read a poem and think about how remarkable it is how we can think of ideas that are so utterly beyond our physical limitations, and yet they come from our physical limitations. Think about love and how love inspires us to be the very best that we can be. And by thinking of all of that, we can understand the second version of the charge given to Moses. No, God wasn't going to do it by all by itself. God charged Moses in the most natural and human of ways that we would be redeemed, not because God would do it, but because God would inspire us to do it. Shabbat Shalom.